for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. It's been quite a break. How was your break? <laughs> My break's been okay. Yeah, I think we haven't recorded anything in like two weeks, and uh, it's it feels longer. Yes, it does. But we have like a gazillion shows to record in the next two months, so we'll be uh, we'll be sick of each other. <laughs> yes, uh, we looking will. Looking forward to feigning enthusiasm for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, could you could you uh, tell the audience what the show is about? I'd be happy to, Matt. We are a internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Aren't we um, an internal medicine podcast? We are, I feel like, the internal medicine podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And we also do some stuff about work-life integration and um, how people work on a day-to-day basis and just where sort of we get to know our guests at the beginning. If you want to skip past that part, you'll be a lesser person, um, but you do have that option as well. I love how you always like give that like passive aggressive like yeah you're 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 worthless if you skip past yeah, the first I, ten minutes. <laughs> if you want to suck, that's on you. I mean that's that's your decision, not ours. So I also by all means skip ahead. I also like how we've resorted to calling the show the Internal Medicine Podcast, <laughs> which is like I always get a kick out of it when like the college football players or or the pro football players are like <laughs> from the Ohio State University. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I like that we're now bringing that to our show since I don't know that any of us actually watch any sports, but I do, I do know that they do that when they are I saying like curling. where they're from. <laughs> you would. <laughs> okay. This, this is another show that is brought to you in partnership with the American College of Physicians and will be available for CME and mock credit at the ACP at acponline.org forward slash curbsiders. You can go there and see all our CME offerings and mock offerings through the American College of Physicians. This episode is on the high-value care curriculum, which was just updated in 2018. I believe it's version 4.0, if I'm I'm not mistaken. And our guest on this show is Dr. Kate Clancy. She is currently a third-year pulmonary and critical care fellow at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. She is a a Center for Healthcare Improvement and Patient Safety, aka CHIPS, fellow, and is pursuing a master's degree in health policy, conducting research on diagnostic error and clinical reasoning. She is also a fellow for the Society for to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, generously funded by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Kate attended medical school at Columbia University, College of Physicians and Surgeons, and completed her medical residency at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. She works with the American College of Physicians on their high-value care initiative and was an author on the recent upgrade to the resident high-value care curriculum, which is why we have her on the show tonight to discuss what I think is a very important topic, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. That's right. I, I don't really have anything for you, Matt. We'll just see where the chips fall. Okay. Just let it sit. <laughs> Kate, thank you for joining us. And I wanted to start off by asking you to give the audience a one-liner about yourself. Sure. So I'm a, a 32-year-old a pulmonary critical care fellow at the Hospital University of Pennsylvania. 
um, and I'm doing uh, research um, and learning about um, about clinical reasoning and high value care and how those two things can go together with medical education. Um, I'm a cat mom, a fanatic of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and a New York sports fan. Okay, I, I can deal with most of that. The New York sports, <laughs> the New York. Sports I know that's fan a tough thing. one. That's a tough sell. <laughs> mm. Do you do you publicly say that in Philadelphia? I do, Pretty but hard. I I don't I don't hate the Eagles, so I get by okay. All right, I won't I won't make any comments about Eli Manning. We are in dicey waters. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting derailed already. <laughs> All right. Why don't one of you guys ask a question then, Paul? Yeah, I'm. I'm actually going to go off script just because I, I'm really fascinated. So, can I ask? I mean, you're relatively early on in your career. How did you become interested in high value care? Like, where? How did this become a passion of yours? Yeah, I think my interest um, definitely started in in medical education, uh, and in particular in this idea of like how do we teach people how to think better and how to uh, really reach this expert level thinking faster. It was something I struggled with um, as a student and as a trainee. So I felt like I really wanted to get to the bottom of it and, and try to figure out if there's a sort of evidence here. And and um, so I've sort of started to do my research around that topic. And it really intersects a lot with high value care, because when you're thinking about what's the thinking process, of course, there's these like frameworks and backbones of that. But then there's this other piece of it, with which is like, how do I how do I actually get that information and fill in these blanks? And is that information even available? Uh, and then um, another sort of opportunity that I had was my mentor works with the ACP on this high value care project. So she's like, oh my gosh, this is a total marriage of these two things. Um, and, uh, and you know, kind of got into it and haven't looked back. I'm just, I'm impressed that you found time to fit that into, did you start that during residency or fellowship? During fellowship. So we actually have... Um, uh, a nice setup with our fellowship program where we do one year of the intense like ICU pulmonary inpatient time and then really have two years of dedicated research. So um, so I've really gotten this sort of space and time to pursue those interests, which has been great. Wow. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. yeah. I spent so yeah. much time just trying to figure out like how the kidneys work and where the bathrooms are like that. I <laughs> to, to develop an interest in this as I just didn't have time until much later in my career. So good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I pretty much just worked and like binge watched Netflix when I was uh <laughs> in I med school too. and I residency. Yeah. <laughs> Stuart? Yeah. Uh I'm gonna slightly deviate off script too, only because Paul didn't I don't want him to be the only one. So um who's your role model and, and why? Like who would you look up to? Hmm. Uh that's not a hard question at all. Uh, my role model is uh, is my main mentor, uh, Jessica Dine. She's one of also a pulmonologist um, at Penn, uh, and she's um, she's just like a, a master medical educator. She's a researcher, um, and she's really found a way to sort of marry that sort of subspecialty training with the medical education, which is can be a little bit of a challenge. Um, and I've just seen her uh, in her career sort of do a non-traditional path. And she's been super helpful in trying to help me sort of forge that as well. I'd, I'd say you're well on your way. We And and at least me, I, I don't want to speak for Paul and Stuart, but Paul, Paul tells me he's not against fellowships. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I, uh, we, mm -hmm. we've talked on this. We've talked on the show before because I, I feel like 
we are, and to some extent, everybody should find a non-traditional path, whether that incorporates mm-hmm. a fellowship or not. I think if you're looking to get like the, the happiest place or the most fulfillment in your career, it should be a non-traditional path, like should be a job that doesn't exist that you created for yourself because of your new, unique set of skills. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's essentially what I'm aspiring to. And I, I, I don't speak for them, but I see my, both my colleagues, uh, Stuart and Paul, are doing the same thing, it seems to me, from the outside. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've applied for the certified physician executive twice. I'm going to do it a third time. I'm going to keep applying until they just give up and <laughs> and let me do it. But you know, there are multiple different non traditional routes to go, and we've all got our niche. It's just it's important to find it. So, any uh, guys, any picks of the week that you wanted to share with the audience? Yeah, I'll go super pretentious just to give Stewart some ammunition. So, I'm going to recommend. <laughs> <laughs> the 2018 Hot Thanks Snakes album, no problem, Jericho Sirens. So that's the album Jericho Sirens by the Hot Snakes. The Hot Snakes, as a reminder, are the fantastic American post-hardcore band. They're led by Rick Froberg and John Rice, uh, formerly of Drive Late Jehu um, and Rock from the Crypt. And the new album is spectacular. So if any of that makes any sense to you, I would go out and go out and buy it. And if none of that means anything to you, you're probably okay to pass on it. But the album, again, is Jericho Sirens by the Hot Snakes. Okay, Kate. I'm going to rely on you to know to know that band. I I am not familiar. I do not. <laughs> I do not. There's like one sad person sitting in the darkness in this podcast who's going to thank me later on. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm 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 going to go in the same vein, only because uh, I I feel like I don't know. I feel like trying to to see if I can one up Paul, which I'm not going to be able to because this is definitely mainstream. But my pick of the week is the ninth studio album, um, by. Uh, by the Scorpions, love at first sting, especially their uh, their single "Rocky Like a Hurricane." That was like my anthem when I was really, really young. <laughs> I was like three years old, rocking out to "Rocky Like a Hurricane." Oh, I have no idea why. I love that song. That is the single most upsetting thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, we Excellent. we usually get some sort of a recommendation, like a book or app or anything. So, did you yeah. have any kind of pick of the week for the audience? Um, so I think, and not to go another podcast on you guys, but I, I just started mm. listening to the slow burn. There's a second season of, uh, it's on the, uh, Clinton Lewinsky scandal. So I just listened to the first episode of that earlier this week. And I think, I, I don't know, it's only one episode, but I think it's going to be pretty good. I, I think I've what seen that, that advertised. It's, um, it's just like a deep dive into sort of a, uh, some sort of scandal. So last mm. year it was, um, it was on the Nixon impeachment process and then resignation and then this year uh they're they're going into the sort of the clinton realm which is so a it, little it looks, little trickier but looks like it's uh produced by slate is that correct yeah yes this this all this true crime type stuff is is just so popular right now uh obviously serial kind of set that all off yeah. but I, I yeah I don't it's it's not not so much for me but I do have a book recommendation that it will kind of segue nicely into our main topic here. So this book if you've uh been training with me or if you've had any health policy discussions with me then I've recommended it to you. It, it's American Sickness by Elizabeth Rosenthal. It's been recommended on the podcast at least once by uh the dantastic uh Mr. Tox and Howard and uh it's a it's a great it's a very easy way to kind of get a broad overview of health policy it fo- it does a great job of like following the money and pointing out things that we uh as a healthcare system are doing um 
you know, and, and where a lot of these excess costs come from. And, and some of that is what we're going to talk about tonight with, with Kate. And that's, that's why we had her on the show, because we want to talk about this high value care cl- curriculum that she, she helped to create. Hint, hint. It's not all about physician <laughs> reimbursements. <laughs> yeah. So case one, uh, case one that we wanted to start with is, a, of course, a case from Cashlack Memorial. And uh, this, this is loosely based on a case that I, I had seen in the sometime in the recent past. So this is a 57-year-old male, has high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, actively smoking, comes to the ED. He has chest pain. It's radiating to his left arm. It started about 30 minutes ago, and it's now gone by the time he gets to the ED. The the physician uh, coming in the door, the physician looks at the standard order set, and in addition to like the chest X-ray, EKG, cardiac troponin, it also inc- includes a urinalysis. So thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> once once his whole chest pain episode's over, and you as the internist are kind of getting ready to discharge this patient after he's ruled out for MI, you notice that there was five to ten. RBCs per high power field in his urine. And now at the time of discharge, you're sort of wondering what to do with that information. So the kind of the first question <laughs> before we deal with this case, and I know Stuart, Stuart is already thinking of ways to pick this case apart, That's which right. he told me in pre-recording, but I'm going to, st- I'm sticking with it. So do it. Can you just define Kate, start by defining high value care for the audience? Sure. So I think, you know, value has a simple definition, actually. It just means quality divided by cost. Um, But I think that the nuance can get lost, and that's what makes the topic a little bit harder. So um, quality here means all of the benefit that can be derived from a particular treatment or procedure, both the immediate benefits and then the longer-term benefits to the patient. Uh, And then cost is really the tricky side of the equation, um, and sometimes what turns doctors away from from this topic um, but that really is going to include all of the financial costs, the typical things that we think about to the patient, to the hospital, to the healthcare system, but then also the, the non-financial costs, um, time out of work, discomfort, suffering, all of those things fit into the, into the equation there. Where does most of like this excess cost in healthcare come from? Can you point out some examples to the audience of like, of, of where it's coming from? Yeah, I mean, as as you're sort of alluding to already, this is a huge problem. You can't even like find someone on the street that can't that's that's not wanting to talk about how much waste is a problem here and cost is a problem in the U.S. Um, the numbers are like actually astounding. So the the spending in 2016, the last time we have full numbers from, was 3.3 trillion dollars, uh, which is and it's sort of like you know, sounds like monopoly money. It's so so much. It ends up be, that ends up being like ten thousand dollars a person, uh, and I think a number a lot of physicians that care about this topic are familiar with is the percentage GDP number, which is eighteen percent of the U.S. GDP, um, and it comes from a lot of different um, a lot of different causes, a lot of different contributors, and there's there's kind of a couple big ones: um, unnecessary services, um, excess administration costs, and then inefficiency. Uh, are the three major contributors. Things like inflated prices and and fraud. I think people think about those a lot and they definitely contribute, but are not the biggest. And then the last one would be like missed prevention, um, which which is another place sort of that physicians have a a foothold in. Can you give some examples? Um, You say unnecessary unnecessary testing. Like, can you Mm -hmm. give some examples of 
and and what are some of the things that contribute to that or, or what can you point out to the audience that they might notice in their day-to-day areas that that are contributing yeah i think you know i think that a lot of people uh, well, I, I don't think that a lot of doctors go into their day every morning and are like, oh, I'm going to order as many tests as possible. Uh, I do. Really, <laughs> a few maybe. But for the most part, that's not true. And actually, most doctors think that over-ordering and waste is a big problem. Um, but I think we can all think of examples in our daily practice where despite these good intentions, uh, we just can't get it done. Just thing after thing happens that prevents us from... Um, from practicing high value care and ending up over ordering the the major way that we sort of categorize it is to think about um, three different areas where you could end up over ordering one is the knowledge and cognitive side of things and that's going to include things like like diagnostic uncertainty for sure not knowing enough about a particular topic and maybe not having enough time to look it up um, and then the, uh, the other sort of, uh, categories are going to be, um, process related things, the systems related issues where it's just easier to order things, um, than not order it. Like it's easier to order things up front. This is like your patient gets admitted to the hospital and you order like repeating labs till kingdom right. come. Um, and I think everyone, I'm guilty of that for sure. Or, or for instance, like ordering an echo that, you know, a patient just got, a week ago at another hospital because there's just such um, a hassle getting it over to you in the form that you want it. Also guilty of that. Um, and then the final thing that's probably the hardest to um, to deal with is culture. And that that's institutional culture, things like um, from the trainee side, you hear a lot about well, I, I didn't want, I didn't know what the attending wanted. I didn't want to let them down. Um, I didn't know what the expectations were. And then right, you got to roll out that phaochromocytoma. <laughs> it's true. If you don't, it's... that one that you miss, that one out of a thousand, oh my gosh, it's going to haunt you. <laughs> no, there's a lot of anxiety about that, I think. And then the other part of the, the culture thing is, um, it comes from the patients themselves too, the interactions with the patients, um, and trying to maintain your therapeutic relationship, uh, with um, with limited time to really explain and go into detail about why or why not something might be um, might be indicated because it gets really complex when you when you think about that. But what, what do you think about Matt? He just found this urothelial carcinoma. He's going to rule it out. He's going to be the man, <laughs> right? I think that's a good question, Stuart. So what what I was trying to point out here. So Stuart Stuart had brought up to me. Well, Stuart, tell me why why it might be yeah, so to order the UA. Right, right. So 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 I was saying that if someone's coming with chest pain, let's say their blood pressure is out of target, even if it's not out of target, you don't know as an ER physician, you don't know what this this patient's baseline blood pressure is. So how do you know they're not having hypertensive emergency? I've had I've had patients with blood pressures, systolic blood pressures in the one forties, one fifties that were having a hypertensive emergency because their baseline blood pressure was in the nineties to one hundred systolic. And so getting that UA may have been needed to, to rule out significant proteinuria and organ damage for that, that uh, hypertensive emergency. You know, yeah. I, uh, unfortunately, you can overthink things, too. And by I, th- overthinking I think this it, is an example of you over, overthinking. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, it's like an example gonna, of me overthinking it. I want, That's why yeah. I'm not an ER doctor. Because, I mean, hypertensive emergency looks like an emergency. The patient's going to look <laughs> yes. sick. Like, it's not exactly. going to be like they're exactly. chilling. Like, this guy, what, what this case is meant to be, 
stable vital signs, comes in, the right. chest pain's already resolved. No one's worried exactly. about this case. We're just ruling him out. And, and now he has this UA where we have to deal with, yeah. he's a smoker, he's over 50, and he has RBCs. And probably no one would have ordered the urine study if and it the, wasn't the, this, in that this order. This kind of harkens back to what we're talking to uh, Gurpreet about. So uh, establishing mm-hmm. your, your, your case files, your, your patient log, and being able to, to harken back to that and say, hey, look, I've seen this patient a thousand times. This is not hypertensive emergency. But the only, only way to really do that is to have some closure with your with your cases. Right. But Kate, for this for this kind of thing in order sets, how much is this contributing to it where there's like these just this is an inappropriately ordered test and it's it, I think it's kind of a systems issue where it was in this it's in there for the physician they might not have ever thought to order it but they just clicked on mm-hmm. it or they or maybe they even mm-hmm. forgot to unclick it. Maybe that that is the case. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it and it's hard too because you might say, you could make the argument that if that's saving you time, then maybe you had enough time to think things through on another patient or to make right. another sort of more nuanced decision. So it's all sort of a balance of um, using the system to your advantage. And then, um, but I think the important part is to recognize there's pitfalls of it. Right. And we actually addressed this um, at our hospital. It was a, a resident led QI project to, uh, to deal with this overordering of daily labs for patients where it wasn't indicated. And they really took it, I think in the, it kind of demonstrates the, the right approach to this where they said, let's deal with the EHR side of things and make it a little harder to, to, to reorder the tests. Let's, um, let's make it a priority culture wise. So they actually added it in as like a checklist item on rounds, um, to remind people like we need to talk about it with the attending every day. Hey, is it cool if we don't get a CBC tomorrow? Um, or, yeah. hey, we decided they don't need a CBC, convince me otherwise. Uh, and they were able to make a change, uh, a, a difference with that. So I think um, going at it with that approach of like, it's not just one thing. Um, it's going to be, it, there's going to be components of this like diagnostic uncertainty plus culture plus the system. And you really have to figure out which pieces make the most sense to change. And it's probably in concert with each other. The reason that I wanted to just put in this this case here is because this is one there where you talk about the downstream effects of these things. And this one, like this person's going to need, you know, they might end up getting a cystoscopy and an upper upper tract imaging. And, and we don't really know this the significance of it. And yeah, we so it's it's sort of it's going to lead to a lot of further testing and patient anxiety and you know, maybe the patient will be saved by this incidental finding, but, or maybe it's nothing. And then they just, it costs thousands of dollars of testing and lots of worry, which is what I, what I worry about with this. Yeah. And as a pulmonary fellow, I think we see a lot of the overordering of CT scans leading to pulmonary nodule right. cycles. Well, that's not indicated. <laughs> oh, <I'm sorry. laughs> right. And thyroid um, nodules. And, adrenal and then you have to follow up yeah. the CT scan in six months. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that the patient anxiety part is such a huge part of it. Um, cause it leads to additional visits and contact with the healthcare system. That's part of that cost factor when you're thinking about yeah. the value. Um, uh, because if they're sitting there, which I would be if I, if I had a concern like that, um, if they're sitting there like stressed at work, not getting done what they want to get done, not engaged in their life. And that's a, that's a really major cost that's hard to make up. So Stuart, why don't we why don't we move on to the next next sure. case here? So we have case two from Cashlack Regional Medical Center Standalone Specialty Care Center. So we have Miss KC. We'll just call her Kaylee. She's a 32-year-old comedian and aspiring actress without health insurance. She's diagnosed with an ACL tear after an injury. Yeah? Injury in the beer softball. What? 
Injuring the beer <laughs> league, soft- beer league what? softball. What is that? It sounds dangerous. It's where you. Uh, okay. It's where you play softball and drink beer. It's very okay, well, popular. Back to my teleprompter. All right. She sees an orthopedic surgeon who practices at both the Ambulatory Surgical Center and the city's large, prestigious academic medical center. She asks you, as her primary care doctor, to estimate her out-of-pocket cost for this procedure. I tell her, well, I've got a puzzled look on my face. So <laughs> what do I do with this? So in order to understand high-value care, we need to know about healthcare costs. But I, you know, I'm a physician. I have no flipping clue what it's going to cost. Can you briefly explain the flow of money between patients, their health plan, and healthcare providers? So that's, uh, I think you're laughing because it is a little bit of a complex question. <laughs> uh, so it's going to be, you know, it's going to be dependent on a lot of different factors, patient dependent. Um, but the the sort of big picture is that for an uninsured patient, uh, you know, she's facing a bill for the entire uh, face value of the surgery. Um, that's going to include like hospital fees, doctor's fees, anesthesia fees, the OR fees, uh, it's going to run in the range of like twenty to $50,000. Um, and that's not probably not including the cost of like physical therapy, crutches, whatever else equipment she needs down the line, and then subsequent doctor's visits. Um, so she, as an uninsured person, she's going to, she's going to get that bill. Um, yeah. you know, an, an individual health, uh, healthcare system or provider, uh, might have something like a, a pay scale, uh, for payment, or they might be able, she might be able to negotiate like a payment plan ahead of the surgery. But in the, at the end of the day, she's probably going to res- be responsible for the majority of those costs. And, you know, even with those other measures to try to mitigate that, um, that's why people have to go into, you know, their retirement, borrow against their house and, and eventually end up bankrupt for, for a portion of the people. So, so are, are these costs higher for the uninsured? Why, if that's the case? Yeah. So then the other, the other sort of side of the coin is looking at everybody else. So that's the uninsured story. Mm-hmm. And then for insured patients, there's a couple different ways to, to have insurance, as most people know. So for a privately insured person, um, you know, they pay a certain monthly premium. Usually their employer will pay, um, also to that same, um, will contribute, uh, usually more than they would. And then you end up basically Per, uh, protecting yourself from this sort of situation where you have a large, um, a large unexpected medical cost that would essentially ruin everyone. Um, and so what, uh, what ends up happening is those insurance companies will make, um, will make negotiations with, uh, individual hospital systems and they'll negotiate down to a price. Um, and so an individual an uninsured doesn't have the advantage of the, of the, um, insurance company to get down to a price. And the, the uh, insurance companies, not insurance companies, but the insurance type, which gets the best negotiations, is going to be the government-based um, insurances. So Medicaid for uh, people under a certain income amount, and then Medicare for people over 65. They have the biggest, because they insure so many people, they have the biggest negotiating power. So they can really get the prices down um, to the lowest amount. Kate, what struck me about this reading to to learn about this topic, both from like the insurance side and from the hospital system side, the it's it seems striking that the hospitals with the biggest like the biggest hospital systems, they can charge the most money for their testing because they can say, well, if to an insurance company, if you don't want to pay this, then you know, then 
we won't take your insurance and you're going to lose like this giant market share. So they, they tend to charge the bigger, the hospital system, they tend to charge the bigger prices versus the smaller privately owned practices. They don't have as much bargaining power because an insurance company Mm -hmm. has less to lose if, if that private practice kind of stops accepting their insurance. That's interesting because the the non-facility rate for CMS is typically higher than facility rate. So I, 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 I don't know if you can speak to that. Do you, do, do you know what I'm getting at there, Kate? So like the, the non-facility reimbursement rate is typically higher than the facility reimbursement rate. So you're saying like an ambulatory surgery center versus a right, hospital? Right, versus like a oh, hospital. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. They, they get reimbursed at a higher rate. I, I don't know why. I just know that that's the case because I, I deal with this on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure um, how it how it all fits in with that negotiating power. But it really does affect patients like you like you mentioned, because we have, you know, people see this all the time where um, a hospital will drop, a, you know, an individual, say, Medicaid servicer, um, and then all those patients have to go find somewhere else. Um, and so it can really or get recapitated under another plan. So it can really um, have a big impact on patients uh, lives. Is there evidence that the patients who are insured have better outcomes than patients who don't? You know, like, let's say we're trying to convince somebody that like a family member or friend that they should have medical insurance. What's the evidence say about people who are insured? Do they do better? Yeah, that's it's it's a tricky question. Um, and there's, there's a little bit of nuance to it. So we actually have uh, some good information from this with the passing of the ACA um, and some other sort of expansions of, of insurance that have, have given up some good, good data, maybe short term, but, but at least a start. So one, there's kind of a different, couple different categories of benefit that you might see. So financial security we see is better in patients that are insured. They're not facing this prospect of bankruptcy. They're not facing this prospect of, you know, just worry for years. Um, and so that probably does have health uh, effects downstream, but we haven't measured them. Um, we also see that people report better health. So they're saying, I feel like my health is better. And I think that that's meaningful. Um, with the uh, with the sort of more um, black and white outcomes, it's been harder to pin down, actually. So what we have seen is that people who do have insurance access more, they access more services in general. Um, but they also access more preventative services. So um, from the onset of um, of uh, the health insurance changes in Massachusetts, we saw that people, they have an earlier, um, earlier time to diagnosis and earlier referral to treatment for cervical cancer, um, which has outcome um, implications. And then also more people with colon cancer were going for potentially curative surgeries so that preventative, those preventative services seem to be making real outcome differences. From the more recent Medicaid expansion um, data, where it's a little bit mixed, but the two things that they have shown, at least so far, is that patients that are insured um, and that are more insured uh, with you know, more coverage, uh, they have um, evidence of improved blood pressure, uh, which can have then outcome implications down the road that we maybe just can't see yet, uh, and then also decreased depression. Uh, and I think that that one in particular probably has like wide reaching um, uh, ripple effects. Now that, that was based on Medicaid expansion data. Is that correct? Did I hear that correctly? Uh, that's from the Oregon, um, the Oregon expansions. Yeah, because they did it. They were able to do like a right. randomized, essentially randomized distribution of insurance and levels of coverage and copayments. And so we have some pretty good data. 
So I've, I've worked at a, a clinic that sees a fair amount of uninsured patients. Are there any resources available? Like if, when you're trying to determine what tests you actually can order and, and how much they might cost, is there, is there a way to find out and be able to tell patients that you're working with exactly what they can expect to spend? The master charge yeah. sheet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there is, there's charge sheets available um, from CMS. Um, and then the, the kind of patient-friendly resource that um, – that uh, I've sent people to, and I've used myself actually to try to understand this a little bit better. Uh, there's a couple of different websites actually that have databases where you can search a test, and not just tests, you can search tests, procedures, mm-hmm. um, even just doctor's visits. Like how much is this, you're gonna, you wanna send me to an orthopedic surgeon, how much is that visit gonna cost? Um, and it's, uh, you basically, you have to put in your zip code because costs can vary so much um, depending on where you are. Uh, but then it gives you a range of prices. And essentially the idea is like a consumer report sort of idea to say, okay, is this a fair price? What this, what they're proposing to charge? And the two sites, uh, is healthcarebluebook.com. And then there's a second site very similar called fairhealthconsumer.org. And both of those, um, are very similar in the sort of, uh, way that you use them. There was, there was an article going around on Twitter, actually two articles I saw on Twitter recently. One was a gentleman who had gotten an echo at the same hospital about a year apart. One time it was by a private group in their office at the hospital. And the other time was, he, I, I believe he was either an inpatient or something, but the, the first time the test cost him about $340 and he paid half of that. And the second time the test cost around $3,500, give or take, and he's on the hook for around $3,000 of that, where it was the same hospital. I believe it might have been different cardiology groups, but it, same insurer, same hospital. And that kind of tenfold cost difference just based on um, – I'm sure he could have gone somewhere else if he had shopped around and known. But he's he's like, oh, well, I had one here a year ago. It was $170 out of my pocket. I'll get the, the next one here. And I can link to that article. And then the other one was a New York Times article. Uh, I believe it was published yesterday. And it was talking about the, the price of an MRI where there's most, yeah. most people are near like 15 MRI centers and the cost can differ pretty, pretty widely. Um, and most patients just tend to go wherever their, their surgeon or whoever's sending them for the test r- refers them to. And, and people for, for certain tests that where, where you could, you could be, I guess you could shop for the test essentially where it would make sense to shop for it. What's the quality? What's the cost? Uh, people really aren't doing that. And I think it's because mm-hmm. there's not that many resources. And if they're, they are there, people don't know about them or they don't understand how to use them. And I would include myself in that group. And that's, yeah. that's part of why we wanted to ask you about this. So according to healthcare blue book, a 15 minute visit should cost you $72. Hmm. Paul, you look like you're going to say something. <laughs> no, no, I was going to actually, yeah, that article actually, I think, referenced that less than 1% of people actually do any kind of price comparison. They just, they just sort of understandably go where their doctor tells them to go and right. they don't actually do the, do the research, which is exactly it's what not, I would It's do. not transparent, though. If it was right. more transparent, it seemed like that they would. Yeah. I, yeah 100%. I, I, think, I think we can probably all agree that right now, in general, when I'm ordering tests in the office, I have very little idea what that's going to cost the person I'm ordering it for. Yeah. It's it's not a true free market healthcare economy, nor is it a true socialized healthcare economy. It's this it's this weird Frankenstein of both, and it doesn't work. So both yeah, extremes, I mean, to some extent, work, but when you Frankenstein it, it just takes the badness of it out of both. Yeah, and I think we've started to think about it with drugs. Like, I definitely think about like what do inhalers cost? What's the right price for it? 
Um, but that really hasn't, that really has not crossed over, um, into other types of testing, uh, at least on the physician side. Right. No, I, I just think there needs to be more transparency in healthcare costs. I think that that would help drive, drive the market. Um, if we're not going to completely, I, I don't think the, the United States is in a position where we're going to be moving towards 100% socialized medicine. So if we provide more transparency, I think that would help our consumers be more cost, cost conscious. Yeah. And I, I think we, we as like the clinicians need to be on top of this as well. So definitely should be thinking about these resources and have at least the idea of like, if you're sending someone for an MRI, what that's going to cost in your market and you can give them yeah. an idea of a fair price. And, and you got to think about it. if you're the physician who's providing that kind of transparency, you, you're going to have um, you, your consumer, your patient, on the other hand, you, you're going to have more patients coming in because they, they trust your transparency. Yeah. So that is the thought, that is a hypothesis rather. Paul, I believe we have another case that uh, kind of moves away from this, what we're talking about here, the, the money. Let's talk about something other than money. <laughs> this series of political landmines that we found ourselves stumbling into. <laughs> You're welcome, yeah, so Paul. Let's, <laughs> notice I, I, my tongue is bleeding from biting it, I think. Um, so let's talk about Ms. G. She's a, a 50-year-old woman who comes to you. She's got a history of high blood pressure and diabetes. She's presenting to the, her primary care doctor's office with a couple of weeks of worsening dyspion exertion. She's having some lower extremity edema. She says, yeah, maybe she's sleeping on a couple more pillows at nighttime um, just to decrease shortness of breath. She's not gained any weight that she knows about, and she denies outright PND. She does have jugular venous distension to your examination. She does have edema, but she does not have any extra heart sounds, so she has normal heart sounds on exam. Um, so we're using this case as our anchor. I think a lot of one of the things I like about the curriculum is that it actually talks about sort of diagnostic reasoning as a way to mitigate against unnecessary testing. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about, uh, yeah, I, I try to avoid diagnostic reasoning when possible, but now I guess this argues for it. <laughs> so in this particular case, can you talk just a little bit about how to use this patient's pretest probability of say, like, what's the utility of ordering a BNP in this patient, um, given her, her physical examination findings and her history? Yeah, I think that was one of our goals making the curriculum was to was to really flesh out and build out that part because if if diagnostic uncertainty is one of the major drivers and one of the more changeable like on an individual level, we really wanted to give people tools to deal with that. Um so so for this so the kind of overall way to think about it would be and everyone does this whether or not they are cognizant of it or not. Um you see a patient, you suspect a diagnosis, uh you th- you think about the pretest probability. Uh, based on what you what you've gathered in the history, the exam that you might have done, uh, and then if you have any other initial data, and if your pretest probability is high enough, you just go forward and you, maybe you initiate treatment, maybe you come up with a monitoring plan. But if you're still uncertain, uh, that's where you can really get into hot water. So you want to think about what are the tests that are available to me, like a BNP, like you mentioned, and then what are the characteristics of this test. So how good is it at identifying the problem I'm looking for? How much is it going to change my pretest probability, uh, which is going to inform my decisions about treating? So at the end of the day, you're back to this question that everyone's heard a million times in rounds. How is this going to change my management? Is this going to change my management? And, and this is just a sort of fancy with math way, um, mm-hmm. minimal math uh, way to get at that, to get at that question. Um, and so for this particular patient, you know, you're starting out, um, she has this history of hypertension and diabetes. So, um, so she might be starting out with a higher risk of, um, of heart failure. Um, and then you're thinking about a test like a BNP. And so you can actually look up what is the likelihood ratio, um, of that, 
of the test that I'm thinking about, of the BNP. And BNP in particular is a tricky one because it depends on how positive the BNP is. Uh, so your likelihood ratio changes the higher the tests get. This is intuitive also. Um, when you see a test that's like way over the upper limit of normal, you're going to say, okay, that's more, that's going to change my opinion more than if it was just like, it eh, just right over the top. Um, so, so what you can do is then apply, you start out with your pretest probability, say it's 27%. Um, coming in symptomatic risk factors, but to the outpatient world and not to the ED. Um, that's why it's not 50%. Um, and then you say, okay, what's the, what is the likelihood ratio of all these individual tests that I've done? So I have a likelihood ratio of my, um, my neck vein exam, my edema exam, and then just my clinical gestalt. Um, and then you can use those to modify your pretest probability and get to a post-test answer. So, and if you have a sense, because I guess you have to kind of know the likelihood ratios for this to be super duper helpful, but how, mm -hmm. how, can you explain likelihood ratios a little bit to us and like how, how much do they have to, how big do they have to be to actually have a meaningful difference? So I guess in other words, what's the difference between likelihood ratio of one versus one of 10? Is that a, a tenfold increase in the probability of disease or how exactly does that work? So it's, it's also going to depend on, um, on your pretest probability. So what the likelihood ratio, what you can actually do is there's a, a nomogram for it uh, where you start out and it has the pretest probabilities on the left-hand side. The center line is the likelihood ratio, and then the post-test probabilities are on, on the far right-hand side. And you actually draw a straight line from your pretest probability through the likelihood ratio to get to a post-test probability. So that's the math I was talking about. No actual calculations involved, just like a pencil. Um <laughs> And so, and so that that's um, that kind of can give you a sense of how much you can um, you can sort of respond and change your your pretest or pretest probability based on that likelihood ratio. And I'll give you a couple examples of, of for this case, like what they would be. So for her um, for her JVD, um, the likelihood ratio, if you see it, is going to be five point one, uh, which which is 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 high. Um, but it's not that much higher than your overall initial clinical gestalt. The highest likelihood ratio in the, in the heart failure exam is actually the third heart sound, uh, which is, you know, harder to hear. Um, but, uh, but that's the one that's going to be, um, sort of the, the biggest driver. And then for the testing, if you have a BNP over 200, the likelihood ratio is 3.7. So to give you some numbers on, on how this patient would transform, um, she would start out, we started, she started out at 27%. Uh, we give her a BNP uh, greater than 200, and that's going to bring her like up into the 50s, so a high 50 percentile post-test probability. And then as you add on those other tests, um, you'll raise her even further. Right. And so conceptually, just to clarify, because I struggled with this, but everybody else is yeah. smarter than me, but it's a likelihood ratio of two does not double the probability of disease. That's oh, that's not no. exactly what yeah. that means, right? So a likelihood yeah. ratio of two just increases the disease not by that much. It's like by about 15%. And then a likelihood ratio of five is by about 30%. A likelihood ratio of 10 increases the probability of disease by about 45%. So don't be dumb like me. Um. <laughs> and you don't even have to do any of that math because there's, um, there's actually an app. Of course, there's like an app for this. <laughs> sure. Um, so there's an app called DocLogica. Um, I actually just discovered it recently. So you can actually like, uh, and it, you can access it on a desktop as well. And you can look up um, the whatever sort of uh, syndrome, like heart failure, for instance. You can go, it has a list of like, are you, do you want to look at EKGs, history, laboratory, CPIC laboratory? 
And then you can actually pick the BNP over 200. And then you put in <clears throat> what the pretest probability was. It's like a uh, it'll, it's a calculator. So it'll do it for you. And you'll say, is my test positive? And actually will change the numbers for you. So no pencil involved, no math involved. Um, just the app is, is, uh, will get you to the answer. That's awesome. That was, that was going to be one of the things that I was going to point out that it's not, I don't think most people have like, you have your gestalt about what's the pretest probability, but I don't think people know like the true percentages of it. And I don't think people have like on a holster, like, okay, the likelihood ratio for this piece of data is this. So speak for yourself. That was going to (laughs) be that. I I feel like this is like a true way that I could see in the future, like machine learning, AI type stuff, like augmenting whatever you're doing at the bedside where it would say you plug in patient 57 year old with these symptoms and they're going to, you know, you're considering heart failure and they would tell you, they would tell you on that, Matt. I'm sure. Oh, think you got to think bigger. It's it just knows. It like knows yeah. what patient you're already on. It <laughs> takes from it takes from the electronic health record all of like the relevant pieces of data. And then when you go to order the test, the BNP, it goes. Here's what we calculate as the pretest probability. Here's the likelihood ratio of the test. Here's what the post test probability would be. Um, do you still want to do like a nudge, right? Like, do you still want to do it? <laughs> and also, and you're it, fired because you're extraneous. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you get to over. You can override it, but. Uh, but you have to do a little button clicking to override it. That that was going to be my next my next question for you. Are we going to be out of a job and how soon? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to get my kids through college before that happens. But I I feel like uh, only this... the informaticists will stay in. <laughs> you got to look towards the future, Matt. Okay, Paul. So we're we're running out of time here. So Paul, I wanted you to kind of bring us home with. We have one more case here, and then we'll get some take home points from Kate. So we're going to talk about Ms. Z. She's a 45-year-old. Oh, my Lord. Let's try. Ms. Z is a 45-year-old male who wrote this case. <laughs> <laughs> that was not me. There <laughs> you go. So we have a, uh, Kate, just just as a, a brief aside, we have a bit of a Ron Burgundy teleprompter type thing uh, <laughs> at the show. And uh, so we like to mess with each other in, this, in the Google Doc that we're all looking at while we're, we are recording. Usu- usually... Okay. Usually I'm the one that is is falling prey to that. Okay, go on, Paul. Keep it classy. Um, <laughs> so, Mizzy is a 45-year-old female with seasonal allergic rhinitis. She's got a BMI of 29. She's got DJD of the knees. She's coming to us with three days of sinus congestion, a post-nasal drip, and a subjective fever of home measured at 99.6 last night. Um, she's requesting an antibiotic that always knocks out the symptoms uh, whenever she gets them that she's gotten at her local urgent clear clinic. Mm. Um she knows that she had a cousin who started with similar symptoms a few years ago and then later died of bacterial meningitis. And so is pretty adamant about really needing the antibiotic to sort of knock this thing out. So can we can we talk about sort of what prevents, use this case as an anchor to talk about what things might prevent us from uh, practicing high value care and how to maybe overcome them? Yeah, I think this patient is a great example and something everybody has seen and might deal with on an everyday basis. Uh, I think the main factors for this patient is obviously her expectations um, colored by the experiences that she's had, uh, and that she has an agenda coming into the visit, um, that doesn't probably doesn't jive with what the doctor is thinking. Um, there's also an element of defensive medicine here, especially bringing up like a bad outcome. Um, you know, this person has an, especially any patient that comes in with an idea of what they want and doesn't get it, that sort of raises the, the heat in the room and really, uh, can, can bring up some issues about, okay, how do I protect myself? How do I make sure I've really thought about everything? 
Um, and then there, there might be, um, some local culture, uh, going on here too, um, because it sounds like she's gotten, she's gotten antibiotics in the past. So like maybe, you know, that's just the way the clinic works. And here you are starting out your new job, trying to change things. Um, and you're going to come up against a lot of resistance. Um, so I think the first, the first step in, in overcoming these barriers is to identify them to figure out what exactly is going on right now in this patient. So being aware of what are the possible barriers and then bringing it down to the level of the actual patient and what they're bringing to the room. Um, and then, you know, it, just like all things in medicine, probably it comes down to, to communication um, and really talking to the patient, trying to get at their anxiety about uh, what happened with their cousin. And that will give you some, that will hearing that story and, and hearing from them about what in particular they're worried about and what their experience have been in the past will give you the anchors you need to um, navigate that conversation. And I think one thing you talked, we talked earlier about transparency in pricing um, overall in the healthcare system. And I think here's another area where transparency helps. I think talking to patients and saying like, this is my thinking. This is what, this is the things I would be worried about. These are the things I'm not as worried about. Here's like the three things on the differential. You don't have to speak to them in that way, but, but to really be open about the way that you're thinking and how you're weighing those, getting back to the, the value equation, how you're weighing all the potential benefits versus all the potential costs. In that way, you're going to have to acknowledge the potential benefits she's mentioning, the worrying, protecting you against a, a really unlikely event. Um, those will get accounted for. And I think a lot of times we just don't give patients enough credit um, for understanding these kind of gets brushed away as like, oh, you know, this is too complex. But but the truth is people make really complex decisions all the time. We just we just have to give them the guidance um, to understand the specifics of this. But, the, you know, they're able to do it. And, and so are we. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of snickering here, but you go through all that with the patient and she still looks at you and says, yeah, I've heard this <laughs> five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times. I want my. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that, and that's going to happen sometimes. And I think you have to, um, you know, you have to, to choose your battles and sometimes make compromises saying things like, you know, how about I write the prescription and if you're not feeling better in three, four days, oh, they, then, they you know, it'll be available to you. I yeah, know they do. I've tried that. They always <laughs> fill it. You're like, when did they feel? Oh, they fill it today. Great. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, you know, choosing your battles and, and, and then, you know, these relationships build over time. So the next time they come in, um, you can sort of, you can reference back that, that conversation mm -hmm. and be like, you know, I, I don't know that we made the right choice last time. I, I, I think about it sometimes and, and maybe bring them to a different place over time. Yeah, show them the likelihood ratio that they're going to get C diff. <laughs> well, I really that love the help. idea of being clinically explicit, like just being really explicit <laughs> with your clinical reasoning with them. I think that's that's a really great point because I've had much more. So where I've seen this fall down is counseling patients about antibiotic resistance because that's just it's such a remote abstract that worries other people. Like, but if if I say, listen, all this argues for a virus. I, I can tell you right now, the antibiotic will not make you feel better and will give you diarrhea. Like, I think if yeah. you just, if you outline your rationale behind those points, rather than sort of going towards the, the greater good and the worried about uh, resistance, I, it's just, I, if you frame the yeah. context in your clinical decision making and how it's directly going to impact the patient, I've, I've had much more success with that. Yeah. And the bonus is that you actually then do clinical reasoning. So it's a way to sort of force yourself into that deliberate thinking mode <laughs> right. because you have to do it in order to say it to them. Um, and then that will help you 
um, on the internal physician side that helps you on the defensive medicine part of things. Because then when you go write your note, you say, you know, I've considered all of these rare possibilities and, um, you know, still decided with the help of the patient that this is not something we want to pursue at this time. Um, and that helps um, both sides. Yeah, I think giving, giving them an out is also helpful. So in this case, I might send them home and say, you look, go ahead and take today off. If you're feeling crummy in two days, give me a call back. We'll walk you in and uh, we'll, we'll see you again then. You know, give them an out, uh, give them a way to contact you in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And that, that gives them some, the confidence to go home and say, okay, you know, if something changes, I know who to talk to. Yeah. And you sort of mentioned local culture as a potential barrier. Like, how much do you think about just the culture of medicine, too? Like, I just, I wonder, I guess specifically I'm thinking about time. Like, I can see yeah. just, yep. you have, your patients are stacking up. And like, do I have time for a 20-minute conversation about the non-utility of antibiotics right now? And you just sort of collapse just to move on to your next patient. Like, I just, I wonder how often that's part of it, too. Or you know what the right thing to do is, but you also have just so much more to do. Like, I just wonder how much the system at large um, sort of forces maybe suboptimal decisions. Yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely a consideration. It's probably the number one reasons people would cite as not being able to do this. Um, and I think one part of it is getting is getting good and being confident in your skills to negotiate this conversation uh, because then it can you can have confidence that this is going to last you know exactly fifteen minutes and it's not going to go much further than that. Um, it never lasts fifteen think, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I think that 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 can help. So feeling. Uh, prepared and confident as the doctor to negotiate that that scenario is is probably key. Um, and then, as I think from a culture standpoint, I know that groups have done things like um, you know uh, shown um, peer uh, prescribing habits and things like that um, as an effort to try to change the culture. Right. And ultimately, as we go towards these EHR decision helping tools, it'll help to direct some of the culture. Uh, w- There's a couple of, of outlying facilities that I've dealt with that uh, they had a history of over-utilizing things like uh, uh, blood transfusions for hemoglobin greater than 7. And it, mm-hmm. they, they just put an, an EHR hard stop in there saying, hey, look, the hemoglobin was this. Do you really want to continue with the transfusion? And it actually reduced the number of unnecessary transfusions by 70% just by an overnight change in the EHR. Yeah. Yeah, we have that in our healthcare system. Uh, where if it's not, you have to like put, if it's over yeah. seven, then you have to put in a reason um, right. for why. Right. And, and it's useful. You know, it's not making a decision for you. Yeah. And I think it's, it's again, it's one, of, it's another way to force you to be explicit about your clinical reasoning that can, in the end, help you to make a better decision than you might have otherwise. The last thing that I think I'd like to point out about the local culture is that we, t- that we talked, the ACP has this hidden curriculum paper. And I feel like, that's one of those things where local culture is like a hidden curriculum where if if everybody orders this test in your institution you might not have you might not have questioned it and we just we just did a show on things we do for no reason and I think that's how a lot of those things have been passed on is by people just like doing things that they've seen and these bad habits get passed on so I think we just need to be more cognizant like with this whole high value care and uh, that that sort of thing, and just say, okay, this is not high value. We're going to stop doing it, and eventually the culture will change if you're kind of leading that leading that charge. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons we uh, another change when we made to the high value care curriculum uh, for the residents was to build in this aspect of quality improvement and systems improvement because I do think that that's the other arm of this that um, 
you can make individual changes. And I think that that you can really make a difference doing that. Um, but there's also sort of this process of how do we adjust these system levels, whether it's the EHR or the local culture, um, or other sort of factors that, that are not just individual based and, and using sort of those same QI or systems levels approach to, to tackle that problem, um, I think is a really important next step. Well, we have taken a lot of your time and I wanted to ask if you could give a couple of your favorite take-home points for the listeners and then we can, of course, link them to the full curriculum so they can go through it themselves, uh, which which is free online, I believe, for everybody. I don't think you even have to for be everyone. an ACP member. Yep, it's free for, free for everyone. And if you're, um, you know, you can go through it and just use it as a resource on its own. Um, but if you're a teacher of residents or other trainees, uh, there's actually like really detailed teaching scripts that go along with each of the PowerPoints and handouts and things like that. So it's a really like no stress, um, just drop into your classroom uh, type of learning tool. Uh, so I think it's a really great resource. And I think the take home points um, for me would be one that and we've, we've said this a couple of times. We spend some time talking about it, but, but value in healthcare is, is about more than just money. Um, it's about the quality of services and the benefit that the patient derives all weighed against the financial and non-financial costs. Um, and then the second thing, uh, which we've also said a couple of times, is uh, that physicians can make a difference uh, in this healthcare waste problem in the U.S., um, and I think there's a couple steps to it. One is understanding the problem. Um, two is, is understanding the barriers, which some of which we just discussed. Uh, and then the final thing is being creative with, with different types of solutions to address the biggest problems, which are the diagnostic uncertainty component, the systems inefficiencies, and, and finally what we spent you know, the end talking about, the culture. Excellent. This has been fun. Thank you so much for all your time tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a great time. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge <laughs> food for your brain hole. Yeah, get show notes at www.thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com or reach out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I am Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And this is Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. Thank you to all the curbsiders who helped to write and produce the show, including Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. We're going with that? Should we? Did you guys read it okay? I guess so, yeah. should see two links one that says you can I live see. on a greek island with 55 cats the other one says high value care <laughs> click on the one with the cat <laughs>